0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. The event that we'll be talking about in this show occurred in the year 1949. And as always, let's have a look and see what else happened that year. On the 1st of January, peacetime conscription in the United Kingdom is regularised under the National Service Act of 1947. Men aged 18 to 26 in England, Scotland and Wales are obliged to serve full time in the armed forces for 18 months. On the 25th of March, Laurence Olivier's film, Hamlet, becomes the first British film to win a Best Picture Oscar. On the 1st of April, the Marquis of Bath opens Longleat House to paying visitors, the first privately owned stately home to be opened in this way. The 27th of July saw the maiden flight of the British-built de Havilland Comet, the world's first passenger jet, at Hatfield in Hertfordshire. But within a year of the airline's entry into service, three comets were lost in highly publicised accidents after suffering catastrophic mishaps mid-flight. Two of these were found to be caused by structural failure, resulting from metal fatigue in the airframe, a phenomenon not fully understood at the time. The other was due to overstressing of the airframe during flight through severe weather. In October of that year, Valerie Hunter Gordon is granted a UK patent for the disposable nappy. And lastly, on the 17th of December, Sutton Coldfield Transmitting Station begins transmitting BBC television to the English Midlands, the first broadcast to be seen outside the London area. But our event occurred on the 4th of July, 1949, in Klagenfurt in Austria, when an unhappy marriage... Ended in murder. Word of the week. And today's new word is... Kerfuffle. A noun which means a disturbance or commotion typically caused by dispute or conflict. Looking into the evolution of the word kerfuffle, car possibly from a Scottish Gaelic word meaning wrong or awkward, and then fuffle, which is an old Scottish verb that means to muss or to throw into disarray. In the 19th century, carfuffle, with its variant kerfuffle, became a noun which in the 20th century was embraced by a broader population of English speakers and standardised to kerfuffle, referring to a more figurative feather ruffling. <laughs> When Margaret Laughlin Williams, a 21-year-old private, in the Women's Royal Army Corps, or WRAC, appeared before Mr Justice Stretfield at the Old Bailey on the 15th of September 1949, charged with murdering her husband, Sergeant Major Montague Cyril Williams, aged 35, at Klagenfurt, Austria, one of the chief exhibits was the dead man's heart, preserved in spirits in a glass jar. It was wrapped in a brown paper parcel and placed on solicitor's table. Cues started to form outside the courts at 7am for a trial expected to last two or three days. 29 witnesses were called by the prosecution. Williams, dressed in a blue frock and white coat, pleaded not guilty. Mr Anthony Hawke, opening for the prosecution, said Montague Williams... Died from a stab wound which penetrated his heart. He went on to say that the jury would have no doubt, after they heard the evidence, that Margaret Williams inflicted the wounds on her husband when she was very much the worse for drink. Mr. Hawke said that if the jury came to the conclusion that when the wounds were inflicted, Margaret Williams was scared her husband would hurt her, like he had many times before, they should acquit her. He said that if they thought she was defending herself at the time she used the knife, that they might reduce her action from deliberate killing to killing under provocation. That would mean a verdict of manslaughter. If they thought it had ceased to be resentment and had become revenge, then that would entirely change the verdict. Margaret met Montgomery in Clagenford, in August 1948, and they became engaged in November. And when they were both on leave, on the 15th of April, 1949, at Torpichan Church, West Lothian, Scotland, they got married. But before the impending nuptials, Margaret had confided in her friends that she didn't want to marry him, she didn't love him. A friend said that it would be better if she let him down before they got married rather than after. But Margaret said she didn't want to fling him down. She explained how she tried to postpone the ceremony to the older man, saying she didn't want to get married until he was demobbed five years later, but he was insistent. It also turns out that when he proposed, she was drunk. And whenever they talked about marriage, she'd been drinking so that when she became sober and realised what she'd agreed to, she didn't have the heart to refuse him, and thought it would all work out. Much later, she told her senior commander that she didn't love Montague Williams, and had married him out of pity, saying that he was a very fine man. Margaret also had a strong friendship with several other women, and when later questioned after leaving court in England, she stated that she had a stronger liking for women rather than men saying,
1: I have always been attracted to women more so than men, but I did not know there was anything wrong with it until a girl I fell in love with told me about it some time ago. I have tried hard to fight against it, and that was the reason why I got married. After
0: the wedding, they returned to Austria and occupied room 54 at the YMCA, the married family's hostel. On July the 2nd, the couple attended a gala at the Grand Hotel in Anaheim as part of a weekend away. There, they met two of Margaret's friends, Private Dean Day and Private Muriel Pickering. Margaret told the court at her trial,
1: Slim got tight and I got a bit drunk. Some other soldiers joined us, but I don't know where they were from. At about seven in the evening, I went up to our room to bed. I did not tell Slim where I was going, I had a drink of gin in my room and I had a cry because I remembered my brother had died in India almost four years ago. After a while, Slim came up to the room and he told me not to go away as he'd be back in a few minutes. When he left, I got up and dressed and I followed him downstairs.
0: The next day, July the third, Margaret and her two friends went rowing on the lake, coming back for lunch. She found her husband still asleep. He'd been drinking So she left him there and took a trip on a steamer, on the lake, on her own. When she came back, they had dinner around 7pm. Margaret became drunk, and Montague was crying, although he didn't say why. One of the friends with them said it was not a great weekend because of this. That evening, they all went back to their billets around 11.25pm. Montague drove them back, although he didn't drive very well, and the friends, quite frankly, were glad to get out of the car at the end. At that time, Margaret was still drunk and in a temper. Montague returned the utility van they'd used in the early hours of the 4th of July to the guard commander of the HQ Royal Corps of Signals, which was about a quarter of a mile away from their YMCA hostel. On returning the van, the mechanic noticed that Margaret was just shouting a lot at Montague. During that fateful weekend, Margaret and Montague had an argument near her Platz, after which Margaret went off with four Austrian men to St. Fieters, Strasse, and into the ghast house, Ludwig Hyde, where they drank and danced. The fiddler and accordionist played English music when they saw Margaret's uniform. The men noted that Margaret was very drunk. She was agitated and quarrelsome, talking at her husband in a loud voice. One of the Austrians even witnessed her kicking her husband whilst ranting at him. Margaret admitted she told her husband to go to hell and he then turned and left her. She went with the Austrians into the guesthouse where they had more drinks and there was more dancing. Mr Anthony Hawke for the prosecution said
2: Her husband sent for a van and two men. He entered the guesthouse and asked his wife if she was proposing to go home. She utterly refused, and the assistance of the two signallers was enlisted to get her out. She was in drunken condition, and was struggling, kicking and shouting. When they got her out, she struck him across the face. The two signallers were dismissed, the parting shot, she kicked one of them in the groin. On the way upstairs to her quarters, she was heard by one of the signallers to use, amid a torrid of abuse, some words like, if I don't knife you. ...to her husband.
0: <laughs>
3: Word on the street.
0: Today, let's take a stroll to Lodge Street in BS1. This was originally called Red Lodge Street, from the house which has a side entrance here, and once had a garden which ran the whole length of the street. The Red Lodge in Lower Park Road is open to visitors part of the year and its garden is still maintained just the way it would have been in the 16th century. During the 19th century, the great Bristol philanthropist Mary Carpenter founded a school and home for street girls in the property which dates from the 16th century and was built on the site of an ancient Carmelite priory. Once they were back in room 54 of the YMCA, they were alone. After some time had elapsed, the night porter puts it about 20 minutes, Margaret came running downstairs in pyjamas and a dressing gown and said to the night porter something that sounded like husband, a knife. She then ran up ahead. When he entered the room, the porter saw Sergeant Major Williams in a chair with his wife kneeling in front of him. When the officer on duty, Sergeant Rose, came into the room, Mrs Williams was sobbing and distressed, saying... Slim, I did not mean to do it. The officer from the 92nd Special Investigation Section arrived around 2.20am to room 54. He found Montague Williams sat in the chair and heard Margaret say...
1: He shouldn't have hit me, then I wouldn't have done it. I told him not to, or I'd stick a knife in him."
0: She later said to the sergeant,
1: "...it's funny. I used that knife for carving wood, but now I've been carving human beings. Of course, the knife should not have been there." In court,
0: Mr Hawke, for the prosecution, read part of Margaret's alleged statement of what happened. She'd said,
1: "...Slim shut the door, and then he proceeded to beat me up. He hit me on the chin in the face and shoved me round the room. I told him to give over and he did so. I suddenly decided I would sleep on the sofa.
0: Montague had asked her what she was playing at and she replied that he'd had her dragged through town and now she'd be the talk of all the gossip in the area. So he could sleep on his own from that night on and could also live on his own.
1: I said I was going to leave him. He told me my mother had illegitimate children and called me a b----. That, of course, started another row. And I said, I don't care what you think of me, but leave my people out of it. I turned my back on him to get into bed on the sofa. When he caught hold of my shoulder, swung me around and slapped me on the face with his open hand. He said, you have jolly well asked for this. I saw the knife on the table. I picked it up in my right hand, I think. And I raised it and said to Slim, you big pig, I'll knife you if you come anywhere near me. Or words, something like this. He laughed and said, you think I'm scared of a little knife you cut wood with? He came towards me and slapped my face once or twice. I hit him with the knife. I think the first time was on his left arm, near his shoulder. And the second time was further down his body. Said, that's done it or something that effect. I got a hanky from somewhere, and put it on the cut on his body, and folded his arms across it to try and stop the bleeding. I did not intend to kill Slim. The thought was furthest from my mind. I just meant to stop him from hitting me, so that we could carry on the same as before. If the knife hadn't been there, he would not be dead.
0: A number of witnesses who saw Margaret Williams immediately after the murder said they didn't see any obvious signs of her having been knocked about. At 12.10pm on the 4th of July, she was examined by a captain who said her physical condition was quite normal, although she did have a superficial bruise, bluish in colour, over the lower jawbone, which was one and a quarter inches long by three quarters of an inch broad, She also had two superficial bruises on the back of her right arm about one inch by three quarters of an inch and three quarters of an inch by half an inch the autopsy on Montague williams showed that he'd been stabbed in the left side of the chest the wound was two centimeters long and immediately over the left rib 6.5 centimeters from the middle there was a second wound one centimetre in length, over the outer angle of the shoulder blade, as well as multiple abrasions over the lower half of the face, around the mouth, and a bruise over the right eyebrow. The abrasions over the mouth were said to be consistent with being caused by human fingernails. The chest wound had penetrated the heart, causing death, whilst the shoulder wound had penetrated the left shoulder blade, where it stopped. The autopsy also showed that Montague Williams had been wearing his shirt when he was stabbed in the shoulder but had taken it off by the time he was stabbed in the chest. The autopsy also said that considerable force would have been required to inflict the wound in the chest. In conclusion, there would have been a gap over at least a minute between the first stab wound to the shoulder and the stab wound to the chest the wound to the shoulder would have continued to bleed whilst the heart was pumping, but the wound to the chest, which would have caused death within a minute, would have bled little, and would have mainly bled internally. Blood was discovered across the room, including on the window, as well as under the table, three and a half feet from the window, and on the carpet, and several large bloodstains five feet from the window, on the carpet, which started a trail of blood drops that got smaller leading to the chair, as well as on the skirting boards. All in all, the bloodstains were consistent with Montague Williams being stabbed near the window and having made his way to the chair, where he sat down and bled for a while before being stabbed in the heart whilst seated. The autopsy stated that it was highly improbable that Montague Williams could have walked after he had been stabbed in the chest. The following is the cross-examination of Private Muriel Jesse Edith Pickering by Mr Christmas Humphreys of the Defence, as reported in the press of the day. She was
3: a nice, kind-hearted girl, as far as you knew? Yes. Then she got engaged to Sergeant Major Williams, who was a rather silent person many years older than her. Yes. He was rather in his shell and difficult to get out of it. In his shell. You were against the marriage. Told her she would be a fool to marry him because she said she was not in love with him. Yes. Did you know that she only agreed to marry him when she was somewhat the worse for drink and afterwards did not want to let him down? Yes. Did you know the arrangement that they had made, which was unusual in a married couple? Yes. Was that there would be no intercourse between them until she felt she was in love with him? Yes. Do you think that got on both their nerves? Yes. On this weekend, it all just went wrong? Yes. Did you get the impression that things had suddenly become much worse that weekend and were working up to a crisis, as far as Sergeant Major Williams was concerned? Yes. Do you remember warning Margaret that people were saying to her husband that it was about time he gave her a good hiding?
0: Yes. In court, Margaret said that her marriage was not a happy one, and they would argue a lot mainly over the fact that Margaret would not have sex until she felt she loved him. They mainly had quarrels after they'd been drinking, and Montague wanted to make love to her. But when she was being honest, she said she was repulsed by her husband, becoming reluctant to be alone with him and staying out as long as possible to avoid him. The marriage, in fact, was never consummated. Margaret's excessive drinking juices situation had the effect of fueling her temper and they used to drink a lot at weekends because, in Austria, alcohol was cheap. At the trial, the prosecutor cross-examined Margaret about her recollection of picking up the knife. Margaret
1: replied, I don't remember. She would later go on to say, I must have been awfully angry because my husband had scratch marks. If anybody tries to do anything to me, I will hit back.
0: When the judge summed up at the end of the trial,
1: he said...
4: I suppose it can be called a sensational case. You have seen an unfortunate young woman, scarcely more than a girl, giving evidence in the witness box. You saw her emotion. She did it. It matters not whether that emotion springs from anxiety or remorse according to whether she committed the crime or not. It does not matter.
0: He went on to say that there were two options available to them. The first was murder. And the second, which was being put forward by the defence, was that Margaret should be acquitted on the grounds that the act of stabbing her husband was self-defence.
4: It has been said that this young woman was being chastised by her husband. You may think, or may not, that perhaps she deserved it after what had gone before. But, of course, a young wife is not obliged to submit calmly to an act of chastisement by her husband even if it is deserved. She is perfectly entitled to defend herself. It is a sad, sorry tale you have heard. This young girl, from about November onwards, was far too fond of the bottle. She was indulging far too freely in alcohol, which is apparently far too cheap in Austria. What object lesson the whole story is, a marriage entered into in that way. And she drank far too much, and within 3 months her husband is dead in these tragic circumstances. She has been indulging in that worst form of drinking, drinking solo.
0: The jury retired and took with them copies of the statement which Williams made to the police and the letter she wrote to her husband, but did not give to him. In the letter written before the 4th of July, she said,
1: Perhaps on paper... I can give you a better idea of just how mean I am. In the first place, Slim, I don't want to hurt you, but I cannot help it. It was from the beginning a certainty that this would have to come. I thought that in time I would get even more fond of you than I was when we were first married. That and the fact I could not bring myself to shatter all of your illusions was my basis for the marriage. It was not good enough. And now I find that every time we are together and alone in our room, I want to scream and get away from everything. It is much better that we should part as friends. I only wish that we could have done this before it went so far. But while it lasted, I think you were happy. Yours with affection, Blackie.
0: Blackie, by the way, was Margaret's nickname, as her maiden name was Black. After a retirement of two hours, the jury returned for further direction. Margaret Williams, her face very pale, was brought back into the dock. The jury wanted to know about the law in relation to Williams' mind at the time of the stabbing, and the second was what would the state of mind be to reduce the sentence to manslaughter. After the judge clarified these queries, the jury retired again, coming back 20 minutes later they declared her guilty, but with a strong recommendation for mercy. On Monday, September the 19th, the judge handed down the death sentence. The Home Secretary received several petitions in regards to Margaret, one from the people of Westfield, where Margaret was from, bearing 829 signatures, there was another petition from Blackridge with 712 signatures and a third from Blackburn with 312 signatures. When the death sentence was announced, the execution date was set for October the 11th, but on the 1st of October, Margaret's solicitor, Mr Prothero, received a letter from the Home Secretary with news of a reprieve. The letter read, Gentlemen, reference of your letter of the 29th on behalf of Margaret Lathland Williams, I am directed by the Secretary of State to inform you that after reviewing all the circumstances of the case, he has recommended His Majesty to respite the capital sentence and that the sentence has now been commuted to one of imprisonment for life. The news was passed on to Margaret and she was immediately transferred from the death cell to the prison hospital. She was now going to serve a life sentence and in those days, it was between 12 and and 15 years for women. On the day the reprieve was handed down, Margaret's parents, Mr. and Mrs. George Black, had traveled from Scotland to visit her. And it was only when they spoke to their daughter that they found out about it. They talked to Margaret for nearly an hour afterwards. Mrs. Black said that Margaret looked very thin and her hair was much fairer than she'd ever seen it. She went on to say her heart was in her shoes.
2: But Margaret was calm. She was wearing a blue plinth dress and a grey cardigan. We both cried but she seemed strangely happy and although we ought to have guessed that she had been reprieved, we still believed that this was to be our last sight of her. Her first question was about her sister's baby boy who was born a few days ago. I was too choked to speak but it was only then when she asked if we had heard she had been reprieved and I felt as if I had come out of the shadow and into bright sunshine.
0: Her father, a paper mill worker hanging under the cloud of possible redundancy, said,
2: My
4: daughter has years of imprisonment ahead of her, but I hope God will spare us both long enough to see her set free someday. She told us that she wants to put the past behind her and start a new life if she can.
0: After the reprieve, Margaret sold the diamond engagement ring, with the proceeds going to a children's charity. As she asked whether she could serve her time in Scotland instead of Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire, as her parents couldn't afford to travel down to see her. She planned to use her sentence to improve her education by taking a correspondence course, as well as learn how to work on the land, with plans to work on a farm or market garden on her release. In the death cell, Margaret had thought a lot about the previous occupant, Elizabeth Marina Jones, an 18-year-old dancer, sentenced in 1945 for her part in a murder. She too was reprieved. During her detention, she was a model prisoner and in August 1951, the prison authorities allowed her to go picnicking in a car on a mystery tour with a welfare officer. The Scottish Home Department official described the outing as an experiment. Margaret was released from Duke Street Prison Glasgow after serving only five years of the life sentence and went on to start life afresh in a new neighbourhood. Her whereabouts were kept secret by her family, her friends and the authorities. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, and settle back to enjoy a selection of 100% spoiler-free book reviews. Whether you're a fan of cosy mysteries, horror, romantic comedies, science fiction, or anything else you might find on the bookcase, being bookish is a great place to start. Join me, your host, Ray, as I take a joyride through the books on my bookshelves and journey into new territories with recommendations every week. You may even hear a few interviews with authors along the way. Find every episode of Being Bookish wherever you find your podcasts. In the news today, a boffin in Bristol's cloning experiments have finally paid off. He said to us, I'm so excited, I'm beside myself.
3: Back in the Day Facts.
0: Right, and today we'll start off with the 18th of November, 1916, when British General Douglas Haig finally calls off the First Battle of the Somme in World War I, after more than one million soldiers had been killed or wounded. On the 19th of November, 1990, pop duo Millie Vanilli are stripped of their Grammy Award once it's discovered that they didn't actually sing on their award-winning Girl You Know It's True album. On the 20th of November, 1820, the whaling ship Essex is attacked and sunk by a sperm whale in the Southern Pacific. Only eight of the 20 crewmen eventually survive through cannibalism. This is inspiration for the novel, Moby Dick. On the 21st of November, 1888, Three people perished when a schooner laden with more than 300 barrels of petroleum spirit exploded in Bathurst Basin, Bristol. The 22nd of November, 1963. US President John F. Kennedy is assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald while riding in an open top motorcade in Dallas, Texas. He was 46. The 23rd of November, 1499. Flemish pretender to the English throne, Perkin Warbeck, is hanged for reportedly attempting to escape from the Tower of London. He'd invaded England in 1497, claiming to be the long-lost son of King Edward IV. On the 24th of November, 1940, the Luftwaffe bombs Bristol city centre. Around 200 people were killed and another 689 injured in the first major air raid on the city during World War II. And finally, also on the 24th of November, 1966, the Beatles began recording sessions for their album, Sgt. Peppers' Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it, but I wasn't really the star... That accolade goes to our talented voice actors Joe Wilson, Sam Roberts, Molly Jeffries, and David Hale from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, Steve Shepherd from our very own Bradley Stoke Radio, and Rose Hales. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.